Welcome to That's Derm Good. I'm Janelle Ball, and I'm excited to bring you thought-provoking conversations about biologics, specialty medications, treatments, and so much more. I'll be chatting with some amazing guests about access, affordability, and advocacy. You're really going to enjoy this show. This episode is sponsored by BC Educators. BC Educators offers in-office training and virtual bio coordinators to create a single point of contact for everything from prior authorizations to prescription acquisition and patient follow-up. To ensure your patients have the access to the medications they need, hire the right team to simplify your dermatology office processes. Visit bceducators.com. That's B-C-E-D-U-C-A-T-O-R-S.com. Patient access is our priority. Today, my guest is Lacey Varnon. You are the VP of NAMAPA. I'm excited to talk about that and get a little more info on what exactly that is. But you've also been a biologic coordinator. So I'm excited to talk to you because you do a lot of the same things, but you're in a different specialty, allergy. And I think allergy and asthma and dermatology are very connected And Mm -hmm. so I'm so excited just to kind of get some of your perspective on those connections and the links and, you know, the roles that we play as biologic coordinators, but just also hearing about your, your story and what you're doing and, you know, the impact you're making. I mean, we connected at the healthcare advocate summit. So, well, I saw you this year, but we originally met at the first advocate summit right Galveston yes yes that was in Galveston wow that's been a minute (laughs) it has it has been a minute okay so let's start from the beginning what got you into the medical field in the first place okay so I feel like this is going to turn into Lacey's work testimony so the medical field in general I sort of came from a medical family my mother was a radiology technologist, um, worked in the cardiac cath lab. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was existing in the world, she was already in a leadership role in a supervisor position. My dad was in the dental field. And I think just Mm kind of growing up, you know, we kind of tend to lean towards what our families do, sort of. I had a family that basically said, the world is your oyster, right? Do whatever in the world you want to. That was too big for me. I needed someone to narrow my scope. Please tell me what you want me to do for a living. I could be the princess or the astronaut. Please narrow this down for me. (laughs) So in high school, really, I sort of went and started shadowing my mom as a way to get out of going to the second half of school my senior year. She was not easy on me. I'll be honest. For the first boss being your mom, I was at work at 530 in the morning my senior year. (laughs) So (laughs) it didn't make anything any easier. But so I actually just learned to, to kind of fall in love with healthcare and just sort of grasp it. And if I wasn't went the other way, there was just no way I was putting my fingers in someone's mouth all day. So um, healthcare was the avenue I stuck with. I feel like there's always something that kind of fuels that passion. You know, when, when you get into healthcare field, there's usually a reason behind it. And it usually is either related to, you know, family, that's kind of what you're used to, or just that growing passion of wanting to help other people. So then you started working as biologic coordinator or were you RN, MA? Yeah. So I kind of have gone through every aspect of healthcare, I guess you'd say. My very first job in healthcare right in high school was really just as a transporter of patients. So mm-hmm. I was just doing the nit gritty stuff, transporting patients back and forth to where they needed to go. I then went to nursing school 
and continued working in clerical positions. So I would work mm -hmm. in the front desk, most offices, that type of thing during that type of role as I continued with nursing school. After that, I ended up in radiology that mm -hmm. was actually connected to an infusion center. And that's where I spent the majority of my time in healthcare. On the back end of infusion, we worked with a lot of cancer patients, more on the PET CT side. So mm -hmm. I spent a lot of my time putting IVs in, <laughs> you know, doing wow. that type of stuff. But um, it was really, that was, I guess you'd say my first step into an advocacy position. I then got my first taste of biopsies. My first role as a nurse navigator was in a breast cancer navigation position. So, oh wow. Yep. And it was still through our radiology department. That's neat. So that was at the hospital then or? Yep. It was sort of our private outpatient center associated okay. with hospital at that time. Yep. How did that work as a nurse navigator? Yeah. No, so it was actually really neat. It was a different role. So we would actually have patients who naturally, you know, would come in for their mammograms every year. And so mm -hmm. this would be a, an inner, inner working type office. You come in for your mammogram if you needed to have an ultrasound or anything set up at that time or a biopsy. This is what I would get called in. So we would take it from the next steps. At that point, if you had any kind of positive result from a biopsy, then we would go the step further. Um, and I would basically follow the patient through their entire process. We would set them up for any kind of surgical consult or any kind of radiation chemotherapy at that point. It became a really neat process for me from a, a different perspective, but it was, you know, it's not something that you naturally want to step into. You're dealing with someone who's dealing with a very traumatic experience. But I think that, again, it wasn't something I would put myself in, but I worked with a really great group of leaders who put me in that position. They sort of thought me out and said, we want you to do this. It wasn't somewhere I would have taken myself, but they said, no, it's you. I'm grateful for that because I think that that opened a lot of doors and opportunities for me that maybe I wouldn't have purposely navigated towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that probably prepped you for a lot of things, but they saw something in you that, you know, obviously you've got to have that a certain type of compassion and understanding and just the ability to help others and, you know, working with patients that are dealing with something that's really yeah. serious. Definitely. It was an interesting time. I was still very young at that time in my life. So <laughs> it was definitely a, a very good learning experience for me. The only reason I jumped over to asthma and allergy was our leadership at that time. Again, I had great respect for them. She jumped over to asthma and allergy. So a, a very large group of us followed her. So that's how we wow. became in the asthma and allergy space. <laughs> okay. So what was your first role then in asthma and allergy? When I very first got to asthma and allergy, I worked the front desk. Yep. Again, worked at a terrific office. I mean, I can't say enough about the people. I've just been incredibly blessed to have great leaders in my life, in my career. So worked the front desk kind of and was just sort of learning the processes of how asthma and allergy work because it's different. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a completely different ballgame. Then step back into the clinical roles. And so doing the whole skin testing and, you know, allergy shots, those types of things. Biologics was something we were considering doing in-house at that time. But mm -hmm. at that point, we were still doing everything through a specialty pharmacy. It was still sort of a playing by ear. Is this something we want to do? Within the first year and a half, I think, of me being at the office, we decided we would do it. Again, I got asked if it would be a position I would like to take on. Yes, sure. I'd love it. Took it on and absolutely fell in love with it. So I've been stuck with biologics ever since and, and have zero desire to ever move from it because it is so cool to me. It's just the whole process. When I started learning more about Bonneville is what it was. It's the mm -hmm. Bonneville process and it's the, the different sides of access. 
of different mm-hmm. space and access. It's the the ins and outs of it. So that's what really gravitated me towards that position itself. It was not easy <laughs> at first, you know, so I think that was the learning curve, but it was fantastic. It was great. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. With buy and bill, you know, I think allergy and asthma does a lot more than dermatology would. I mean, I think there's two that I'm thinking of right now, what Illumia and then Spivigo you can do buy and bill with, but those are the only two that I know of that we can do buy and bill. I think Solara you could before, but I don't think people really do Stellara as much anymore. But when you were learning that process, let's talk about what exactly the buy and bill process looked like. And how that learning curve, what that learning curve was like, because whenever I hear buy and bill, I'm like, seems like a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) You're exactly right. It's one thing you don't want to mess up. I'll go back in time for just a minute. When we were learning that process, it was terrifying because Mm -hmm. it is truly something you don't want to mess up. And I come from a smaller town. We're such a close knit group around here. I put a lot of pressure on myself, me and my partner at the time. um, Her name is Stephanie. We did. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves to get it right. We did not want to fail at this. It was something mm-hmm. that we needed to understand. I'm one of these people that I don't have to necessarily agree with you, but I need to understand where it's coming from. So I will ask a thousand questions. As long as I get it or know where we're coming from, I'm cool. I just need to see the pathway. So we did a lot of studying. It was a lot of Google searches. It was a lot of staying up at night and showing me what can we do. When we very first started this process, we started out working with an outside group, a third-party company. And honestly, that was very beneficial for us. It was great for us because we learned a little bit more. You know, we had some bumps along the way because we didn't know anything. We were picking apart everything. I know we drove people crazy. To this day, we say, we're so sorry you ever had to deal with us in the beginning. Um, Because we know we had to drive people absolutely insane. But we asked anything that came up. We're like, but tell me why you did that. You know, (laughs) explain to me what that reasoning was. Because we needed to understand what that process was for our own benefit. So buying and billing would be what? Buying it from the pharmacy and then later billing the insurance company. Yes. So with buy and bill, you purchase the drug from the distributor and Mm -hmm. then you bill for it after the injection. So when we look at specialty pharmacy, that type of thing, basically we acquire the drug from a pharmacy. The pharmacy bills the patient at the time of the delivery or -hmm. the time of the shipment of the drug. And then we administer the product in the office or they administer the product at home if it's a self-administered drug. So this was our way sort of, you kind of do it on the flip side when it comes to the billing technique. We would purchase the drug, bill for it after we actually administer the product. So that bind bill drug does not belong to any particular patient. Mm. That's one of the very particular things about bind bill. You could move that drug around if you needed to. So if a patient decided not to start therapy, it didn't belong to just them. You didn't lose anything. You could move it around. It kind of, I don't want to say eliminate your risk at all. There's still a lot of risk involved with it, mm-hmm. but that's the game of it. That's the puzzle mm-hmm. is to be able to move things around and be able to shift your products. Yeah. So if you're buying it, what are the liabilities with that? Yes, let's do it. <laughs> so I like to tell everyone when it comes to buying bill, you take on a lot of responsibility. The number one responsibility I want offices and want everybody to understand is you take on the responsibility of understanding your coverage. So you need to learn how to do a benefits investigation fully and understand Mm -hmm. what any of that means. So you need to check and make sure that you even are capable of buying and building a product under that particular plan. Not every payer will allow us to buy a bill. Some people don't have medical coverage for a buy and bill drug or for that particular J-code. Some people require us or mandate us to use a specialty pharmacy. 
So there's lots of ins and outs of buying bills. So to eliminate or to decrease your risk, you need to understand certain processes in place first. So buying bill is literally a series of checklists. You basically get your list and start checking them off. Did mm -hmm. I do my benefits investigation? Have I evaluated my fee schedule? You know, in other words, once I've learned, can I buy and build this? Perfect. Have I now looked at my fee schedule and realized I'm not going to end up losing money for the office if we do move forward with this? Okay, perfect. Is my patient eligible for copay assistance if they have any kind of responsibility out of pocket? Okay, are they enrolled? These are all responsibilities that you take on as the office now. There's no one doing that for you. This is all in you. Mm. So you need to make sure that you have those things in place. One of the great things about it, which I always hate to tell people, is it gives you the control. I've learned that I might be a control freak because I like having that control. When it comes to the insurance side of it, yes, you do build the insurance. You're also responsible for that prior authorization too. We know that with specialty pharmacy as well. You're going to be responsible for that side of it. But, you know, when the insurance claim, you're going to be responsible for filing that for the J code and the administration. When it came to specialty pharmacy, we were used to just filing the admin code. So we were not really used to doing anything with the drug itself. The difference mm -hmm. is, is that now we're actually building the, the drug code. So you need to know how many units you need to build. You need to know the proper, you know, your modifiers. You need to know all these inf this information that's associated with each drug. And Where do you learn all of that? Yeah. So your field reimbursement managers will become your best friends. They truly will. There are billing guides associated with each drug. And it will be very beneficial. On top of that, I always say have a great financial partner in crime. <laughs> I think Medicare guidelines is like one of my top favorite things that saved in my Google search history. But, you know, it's just always constantly staying on top of what's new and what exists out there in the world. I always say networking connections, be someone who knows enough people that are willing to share. Hey, by the way, did you know this changed? That wants to share that information with you as well, just in case you did happen right. to know because things do change quite often. So it is just something that you have to be on top of. I know it sounds like there's a whole lot involved in it, and there is. I actually prefer it. I know it sounds super stressful sometimes, and it can be, but it's also like a puzzle. It gives us more of that inner office control that, you know, if you have an issue with your bill, with buying bill, I can assist with that more. I can't really help you with, with a specialty pharmacy plan. I can't do too much with that. So I can assist you more or let you know why there's any kind of balance when it comes from our own office. Mm -hmm. So you would say for you, buying and billing is a lot easier process than, than a medication that's an injectable that just goes through the pharmacy benefits. Yes, I would say that, but it's going to be how you determine easy. I define it in time restrictions a lot of times. Once we got to a, a way of doing these things, buy and build became an easier process for us. I can tend to do more buy and build patients as opposed mm -hmm. to my specialty pharmacy patients. That's because of the time restriction. I'm at someone else's mercy when it comes to specialty pharmacy. I have to call and set up deliveries. I have to wait until, you know, someone else has processed the prior authorization information online, that type mm -hmm. of thing. Whenever I can tend to, on the medical side, I like to do everything as much as I can through portals to have digital tracking information. So I can follow a lot of my information and load it myself and start that patient. <laughs> you know, I can have everything kind of on my own time frame, and I get it. You know, it's the world we live in. I understand the time restrictions that apply. So it's not anything like that. But, you know, we need certain enrollment forms for specialty medication. I understand. But Bonville already had my patient in my EMR system. I don't have to enroll in anything there. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's certain things that are just a benefit you know, for having us that cuts down a lot of the time restrictions. That makes sense. So 
you guys have a lot more medications that were easily buy and bill in dermatology. I feel like a lot of the medications that we got were self-injectables. So we didn't have a lot of options to do buy and bill. So I feel like my process was a little bit different because we never really had a lot of that experience and you were just experienced on buy and bill right from the start. So Mm -hmm. that transition to some of the biologics that were coming onto the market that were self-injectables, how did that make you feel when you started getting those? And they're like, nope, you can't Uh, buy and bill this. Okay. So that's okay. There's a time and a place for certain products. I'm going to be transparent here and it's not going to make me popular. I'm just going to be honest. I have a personal qualm with self-administered drugs. I love them. And honestly, the self-administered drugs that we have that exist in our space are terrific drugs. They're fantastic drugs. And if they didn't work that well, I wouldn't have a problem saying any of it. My issue personally, when it comes to self-administered drugs is I do think that they exist for certain patients. I don't think they should have to exist for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think that we need to narrow that scope a lot more and not make it to where this is self-administered and that's it. Mm -hmm. I think that we need to maybe start narrowing that down to this is the self-administered patient. This is what they look like. And these are the guidelines that must be followed in order for that to be true. One of the big dilemmas I personally have seen, and again, we can only go off experience, right? Not everyone's going to have the same experience I have. And I'm very well aware of that. But in our workspace, one of the big issues that we have is follow-up. So when we have self-administered patients, we tend to lose them. They don't come back in for office visits because they're Mm -hmm. doing well in their biologic. Why do they need the follow-up? So when it comes time for that prior authorization to be renewed, I don't have clinical data that shows any kind of benefit. I don't have anything else. So then they can't continue on that biologic. And then people get very frustrated. Mm -hmm. And then there's another delay in care. And then we have a lot of stuff. And it gets very frustrating for everyone involved. From the coordinator standpoint, we're like, well, if you could just do this and this, or if we could just have you come in the office every time, we know how we can track all this stuff better. Yeah. It's just that I do 100%. I think, hey, you have the college student. We don't want you to stop taking your drug just because you're going away to college. No, you you would 100% be a great self-administered candidate. Have someone who lives far away from the office that we don't want you to drive an hour and a half to come in just to get your shot. You know, there's time and reason for everything. You live two hours down from the office. No, that's kind of silly. I think you need to still be able to come in. But again, it's not necessarily a financial thing for me. It's more of the adherence. Um, mm-hmm. we need to be able to track that better. One of the things I personally am super pumped about though, is the addition that we're starting to see of remote monitoring systems. So there is now ways that we are starting to be able to track these a little bit better. So this is something I think is going to be a game changer for our self-administered patients, which is going to help us. I'm still toying with the ideas of how, you know, are we going to be able to submit that data for prior authorization stuff? That'll be great. Mm-hmm. Because again, that's part of my biggest dilemma when it comes to that is is not being able to do the follow-up correctly mm-hmm. and the follow-through correctly. Right. No, I mean, you know what? I think that's probably across the board. You know, mm-hmm. most offices that are dealing with biologics, especially the self-injectables, it's difficult because actually I was just talking with an office the other day about this and making sure that we're able to keep our patients compliant. And the best way to do that is, you know, number one, making sure that there's not a whole year's worth of prescription sent in for the patient if they've got to come back in for a six month follow-up, you know, because yep. the insurance 
is going to tell you, we need to have chart notes. And if that patient is not following up, and then we all know what happens, you know, they're calling in, and they're needing their next dose, and they can't get it because there's the prior authorization has not been approved. And they haven't been in for a follow up, you know, they get frustrated or an office might think, oh, it's insurance issue, but no, really it's the quality issue. We want to make sure that patients are remaining compliant, that they're following up on their injection experience and efficacy too. You can see, you know, patient comes in and says, oh yeah, I've been doing my injections the right, but I'm flaring and come to find out, oh, I missed an injection that week, (laughs) or I took it a week later. And, Uh you know, you see all of these things and you can't monitor that you can't, you know, so there definitely is the right patient and the wrong patient for especially medication. But if that's the case, do you ever see like just having the patients come back in to the office to do that injection? Have you ever seen that where you just have them come in for those injections? Yeah, we do. And again, I think it goes both ways. So we actually do have patients that will still come in. I think you have to be very careful when you look at products that were created for self-administered use, we have to be careful when we have people come into the office repetitively for them. It's not that it can't be done. We just need to follow certain guidelines for it. In other words, don't give an auto injector all year long in the office mm-hmm. and try to fill that administration. Right. I'm not an auditor, but I'm telling you, that's the first thing that would red flag me. Why in the world are you giving an auto injector pen month after month? You know, just those types of things. But it's drugs that show up blatantly clear on the sad list for Medicare. Self-administered drug list or Medicare. We just have to be careful that we're not trying to bill out for administrations and things like that when these things present themselves in certain ways. We just don't want to cause unwarranted accidental issues for our own office. So I think that, again, when a product is created a certain way, when it's meant to be a certain way, it's not that it can't be done. I think that it's better that we track in office. It just takes a little bit more of just mind power on our side to make sure that we're doing it correctly. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So you work as a biological coordinator for how long? Let's see here. I worked as a biologic coordinator probably for about six years. I'm thinking of when we merged companies. I was still a coordinator at that position. I don't know why I was pretending I decided not to work there anymore before our company actually merged with another facility. And I continue to be a coordinator in that role. I gained more offices at that point. Yeah. So it's been a while now. How many offices did you manage? At that point, I went to a regional schedule. So I had Tennessee, Arkansas, South Kentucky, and part of Missouri. Oh, wow. So I had like a, a regional area. Yeah. So it was it was multiple offices. I think that's when things started getting fun for me. I started branching out a little bit more and realizing how big the scope could get. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know. It became more of, of learning the business side of things too. Then I really started getting more involved in contracting and wanting to kind of get a better grasp on that and that kind of stuff. So that was a little bit more outside of the coordinator role in itself. But what I loved about doing that position was learning the multiple payers. So state mm. by state, I don't even want to say I love that. That was a love-hate relationship, right? <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, it's like when you start first start realizing that things are not always going to be as easy as what you think they are and realizing how good you had it. <laughs> um, because, and I'll, I'll tell everybody in the world, the state of Tennessee is the place to go for Bonville because it was it's fantastic. But in general, payers change by state to state so much. And I think it's one of the things I had just been sheltered to. I didn't have mm-hmm. to deal too much with it. I did deal a little bit with it, but not too much. So it was a great learning experience for me personally to be able to see how the different payer scope was looking and that you did have to change the way you process things 
based yeah. off how other people need to get done. So you're working on streamlining processes within all of those offices then? Mm-hmm. Yep. So again, at that point, what we would do is we would have our providers would basically write for an order and it would come to their own assigned coordinator, which would be basically the, the coordinator for your region or for your area. So I would get, you know, multiple doctors who would have their prescriptions sent to me. So I would take over the acquisitions for all of those. And it would just be learning, okay, can I do any of these through provider portals? Do I have to submit them by paper? Do you have to literally call every time to do any kind of authorization this way? My big thing was benefits investigations for these. So again, mm-hmm. it, that's when I started developing uh, templates for a benefits investigation because it was no longer just a good post-it note you could have on your desktop. It was, okay, no, I need to, I need to be able to track these. <laughs> so yeah. where's my patient? What's my information? And how can I fill it all in? which has become very beneficial and is something I still use to this day. So just having good template information and stuff like that, you can fill in while you're on the phone with these people. So, and it becomes a part of the patient chart. So that way you mm-hmm. have all that information at hand. Yeah. So, I mean, and that becomes such a huge part of the process because, you know, obviously when you're not organized and things can fall through <laughs> the cracks and just get chaotic, you know, especially when you're managing mm-hmm. a lot you know, a lot of people, a lot of offices in different states even. So, you know, I mean, for you, you had to learn so many different payers because one insurance plan in in the state of Tennessee could be different in Missouri. So there's a lot that goes into it. And, you know, when you're talking about the similarities, I feel like the process is the same. You know, Mm -hmm. you can be an allergy, you can be in dermatology, but you still have to have that, that training and the organizational tools and, implementing processes in the offices so that you can make sure you're able to get that access for patients. And, you know, I'm, I'm huge on the education, not only for patients, but in the office, office staff and making sure that they understand how to document properly and Mm -hmm. how to make sure that they've got those chart notes. (laughs) You ever run into any issues like that? Oh my, I don't, I wouldn't know what you're talking about. Yes. (laughs) No, and I, I think you make a great point. This is huge, right? And I think that another one of the biggest things that we run across is just like what you said, being able to implement something like that. Also, not being afraid to say, hey, that didn't work. Right. <laughs> you got to yeah. change because things do change so often that it's very imperative to be able to say, look, we tried it and we gave it everything we had, but something's still not clicking here. You know, where I'm at now is at a national level, something that works in you know, half of my offices may not work in five or six more. I always say you got to meet people where they are. You got to kind of get to this level of, we got to go back to the certain education level too. Just because we kind of live in a biologic space, not everybody does. I always Mm -hmm. say I get the luxury of only living in biologic world. I still am very aware of asthma and allergy spaces a lot bigger than biologics, but I don't have to live in the whole world anymore. I only get to live in biologic space. So my scope is very narrow. I understand that people in the offices have so much other stuff that they need to do as well. I remember Mm -hmm. being there. I just don't have to currently live there. So I'm empathetic to it. So I try to work well with their current processes and how we can implement what needs to be done still. My big thing is working with providers a lot. So when you talked about documentation, this is a big one for me. That's huge. A lot of times it's as simple as, hey, by the way, did you know I know you get frustrated when we can't get things approved quickly and get your patients on medicine. Did you know if you started adding in maybe these lab values here, or if you start maybe adding this worksheet in this, when they come in for these injections, 
it would really cut down on the time that we spend mm-hmm. going backwards to call to get this information later. So it's it's a processing technique, 100%. It's definitely just changing the way that some things are done to better work for everyone. Right. Yeah. I mean, now, you know, insurance companies, they want to know all the information. You know, it's before I remember doing prior authorizations and just sending in prior authorization and they took our word for it. You know, now it's not like that. So, you know, there's more information that's required and we have to have that documentation and showing improvement on medications too. You know, that's huge. I mean, that's the last thing that I want is to have a patient that's approved on therapy and doing well, they come back in a year later and the insurance is like, no, we don't see any improvement in these notes. So we're not going to prove anything. Yeah. So one of the things I like to tell providers and nurses, honestly, too, especially if they work really closely with provider mm-hmm. is everything in biologics just has to make sense, right? It doesn't have to be overly hard. It just has to make sense. So think of anyone in the world being able to look at anything you do and asking those exact questions. Look, we understand that you know your patient. You've seen them for the last 15 years but do I know them? Mm-hmm. And can I tell by them being on this medicine if it's doing them any good based off what your doctor doing? If I can't, then the answer is always going to be no. So you just have to be sure to write them a story in your documents. Yes, yes. <laughs> Every time that you want to make it crystal clear that, look, I want to continue on this drug because this patient has seen benefit as seen by this, this, and this. I'm also a big fan of stock notes, honestly. And EMR systems, when I can create them, I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of stock notes. I want you just to hit this note that says, this is why they had benefited from this drug. Um, I don't even necessarily need you to put your own words in there anymore. I just need you to put this down there and select one. Select two or three if you need to. But I need you to help us move forward with this because we're not helping anybody if we're not truly documenting what's actually happening with these patients. And that's just from every standpoint. I'm amazed by physician brain anyway. I think that they're super wonderful. Mm-hmm. I can't remember my own name half the time. So let alone what is happening in someone else's life. And they're truly amazing. Right. They do remember what's going on in these patients' lives. But, you know, I think that even from a best practice scenario, that's something that we need to get accustomed to is truly documenting well that mm-hmm. any of us, especially I would, my biggest dream would have to be to have an auditor come in and look at all my charts and say, I have no, no problem with you because every one of these is absolutely perfect because the documentation would be so well. That would be, I think that's everybody who works. In oh, that's <laughs> coordinator's dream. Anybody that ever has to do a prior authorization. I think that is like yeah. their, the dream oh, <laughs> to have perfect notes. Well, it cuts out on delay. You know, when you yes. think about the majority of issues with the time that it takes to get the patient medication, whether you're submitting it yourself, going direct to payer, or if you're using a specialty pharmacy, the back and forth between the faxes going to the insurance company and the insurance coming back saying, we need more information, or, you know, this is missing out of the notes or, you know, whatever else the case may be, there's a lot of back and forth. And Number one, if a lot of offices don't have one person that's focused on handling that the prior authorizations, then stuff comes in and it just sits. You know, there's a fax that comes over and who's handling it? Oh, I, you know, I've gone into some offices where it was multiple different MAs that were just taking turns of doing the prior authorizations. And you wonder what is the time to fill? 
How long has it taken your patients to get their medication? Because you don't have one person focused on actually getting the access to the medications. And there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just, oh yeah, just check with the insurance and see if it's going to get approved. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, Yeah. A lot of those delays just have a lot of the back and forth with the specialty pharmacy. And it's a thing too, when you're using a third party that's helping with the prior authorizations, you know, they're essentially looking at those notes to try to check off, you know, the boxes for the prior authorization form. And, Mm -hmm. And I think this is where we're seeing a lot of these insurance plans that are not even accepting this anymore. They're like, no, we want to hear from the actual provider. We don't trust you what you're saying, but a lot of times if you can't paint that picture, like you were saying, creating that picture, telling the story of the patient in those notes so that anybody looking at it, especially an insurance company can say, oh, this makes sense. This is why they need to be on this medication versus what we're saying they need to have step therapy on. Yeah. So I'll tell you one of the biggest tricks I learned a long time ago that works out well for me is creating that relationship with your provider. So Mm -hmm. I'm a visual person. I like to see the information myself. I don't always have to, but I like to. So one of the things I started doing was when I had a provider that I was notorious for just documenting a certain way, I would print out the medical necessity type thing, or, or I guess you'd say like maybe a payer policy, medical criteria. It shows me exactly what I needed to get that approved. Then I would send it to them and say, I'm showing you this for a reason. I want you to see what you need to document in this upcoming office visit mm-hmm. <laughs> for yeah. this approval to go through. It became a habit. So then they would start documenting differently because they're like, okay, now I'm understanding you're not just saying something to me that didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Because like right. you said, a lot of times people still just assume you can almost go back several years ago and just submit that piece of paper and everything's fine. Because right. if they don't live in that world and they don't have to go through that day-to-day of you know, kind of dealing with the same questions repetitively and, and having the fact, the fact that maybe they don't always see. Yes, they do get some of the peer-to-peers, they get the pills, but a lot of times we're still finding those appeals for them, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff like that that maybe they're not aware of. So, you know, we don't want to hinder workflow. We don't want to do any of that stuff, but it's, I'm very proactive. Anything and everything we can do on the front side, I'll work 10 times harder on the front side to never have to chase it on the back. So mm-hmm. I think that's part of the big deal is to try to, to change how we do everything on the front side, start documenting better, start making sure we have everything in place so that we don't have to do so much on the back end. That's when right. you start to get a really smooth workflow. And that's yes. when things are so much fun. That's when people get to really start falling in love with the process because you're like, whoa, this stuff can really yes. go well. <laughs> that's so true. That I love that you said that because, you know, that's where that passion for helping others, when you know that you're doing what you can yeah. to get the patient on the therapy and you're seeing the results because they're able to get on therapy quickly. They're able to get better and they're coming back in for the follow-up and they're excited and they're motivated. And that makes such a huge difference. And when you have things that fall into place, that makes it so much easier versus being frustrated because, Oh, I got another denial or, you know, or even some of the providers will stop writing medication because they just think that there's no access And, you know, I have one of my providers asked me, called me up and asked me one day, what drug is the easiest to get? Uh (laughs) Like, why would you ask me that? Like, whichever one you think is best for the patient. It's not about which one is the easiest to get because I can get any of them. Yeah, but that's truly where it's turned to is what can I get? You're exactly right. A good coordinator, someone who's efficient in their role 
should say, you tell me what you want. Right. And I'll get it for you. However, we need to get it, you know, mm-hmm. some way, somehow, if we, if we go through two denials and we have to end up on a free drug program, if we have to go through every way we can, we'll get you the product you feel is necessary for the patient to be on. Mm-hmm. But I hear the same thing all the time. Tell me what's just easier to get. Providers are now going, okay, just tell me what I need to write. No, I want you to still go backwards and write what you want and we'll get it there. I really hate that we've made that shift. Right. It's just the access world. Like people just feel it is too hard. And mm-hmm. hopefully we're seeing more changes. But again, I think this comes from those people not in those designated roles mm-hmm. to do the position and maybe didn't know how to at the time. And things right. do and you have to keep up with it. So it's an ever-evolving cycle. We're never going to not be bored. (laughs) Oh, I know. Especially with, you know, with so many changes with insurance. And like you said, the criteria changes so often. And it's like, we have to stay on top of things to know, okay, now there's going to be changes this year. These are the things that we need to have. And and that's a yearly thing. So, I mean, sometimes even more than twice a year, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's always changing. So it's important to know, okay, just be prepared that there's probably going to be insurance changes and there's going to be updates and there's always going to be new requirements, especially when there's new biologics that are coming out that are on the market. There's probably going to be some other requirement that they're requesting, or, you know, we're seeing a lot in Durham, a lot of stuff for alopecia. And so now we're starting to learn some of the criteria that's needed, some of the scoring tools and things like that. So, you know, it's a whole nother learning curve and, you know, there's no more of just sending in saying patient really needs this medication. No, we need to know why we need to have things that back it up and we have to have all of that documented. And, you know, and I've heard this a lot more recently, but if it's not documented, it didn't happen. And that's the truth. Yep. Very true. So you are moving on as the biologic program manager. So I'm now the biologic program manager. Okay. So what does that role entail? So I now get the wonderful position of getting to be the cheerleader for a whole wonderful group of just the most fantastic biologic coordinators and a benefits team and some specialty medication access group. So I get to step into a different role, just like a leadership role. I do tend to step behind the plate still, submit my PAs every now and then to keep myself handy. But I don't tend to have to be on the phone with insurance companies as much as I was before. I'm now in more of the backhanded business side of the role with more of the contracting negotiations, that type of thing. I still try to stay on top of all payer policy issues, that type of thing. My big thing is to try to be one of the people so that the coordinator didn't have to be everything. I will try to stay as much on anything I can help provide them with that information instead of them having to be the person that searches for everything. You know, so we can do it all as like a team effort instead of just a bombarded trying to do it all myself because it can be so much to do. So we try to approach it all as a group. Yeah. So how many offices are you in charge of? We're national. And I think that we are now right at 133 locations. Wow. Yeah, it's fantastic. That's exciting. It's a lot of work, but that is really exciting. And being able to just impart your wisdom and your passion to your team, I'm sure that they're really excited just knowing you and your bubbly (laughs) self. And (laughs) I can just imagine those meetings and the excitement with those meetings. (laughs) I pray for them on a weekly basis. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm sure you need to. No, they are truly a fantastic group. They're so versatile and they just know so much. 
I feel very blessed to be able to be a part of this group because we all know how hard it is to learn this stuff and to find a small group of people that are capable of doing this mm-hmm. type of thing well. Um, I'm very lucky to have a, a larger group. I mean, we have 15 members of our team right now. So to have a large uh, members who are who understand the process, even if we understand that we need to know more, but they're also willing to do it because we're that unique people. You know, we're, we're that group of people that vacation stress us out. And you don't find that many that are very similar. And I love the fact that we're all over the nation. So my whole team is remote. So not everybody lives in the same state. They don't all live in the same town. They're all all over the place. So we get different yeah. personalities and different, you know, takes on stuff. So it's it's sort of a neat dynamic. And it's, it's really cool to have this different approach to biologics. That's so kind of similar to, to my company. We're, we're a smaller team, but... Yeah, we're all over. And so it is nice to be able to have that flexibility to be working remotely, but you have access to do a lot more. I feel like because you're more focused and it could be a bad thing because you could be working up all night. (laughs) All night. Listen, so, and it's really funny. I actually had someone ask me this question not long ago. They said, well, why would you want to have all your biologic team remote? Don't you think they need to be in the office? And I so quickly responded, no, that I shocked myself. Um, and the thing was, is that being in the office hindered us from a biologic coordinator standpoint. I mm-hmm. can 100% remember being asked to do a thousand different things throughout my workday. And I said, not that I want anyone to ever feel isolated or anything like that, but there comes a point to where you need to be so focused on this. We can get so much more done in mm-hmm. a remote setting and you have to be super disciplined. But most coordinators, especially the really great ones, are super disciplined. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, they're going to do well in that type of position. And again, they get the flexibility if they need to go pick up their children from school or something. You know, we're not hindering that flow. That's one less stressor they have. The ability to not have to say no to another employer because your workload is already too big and you still feel like you have to do everything else in the office too. That's actually become a big blessing for them. And I mean, it, I feel like it helps to reduce time to fill, you know, and I was just like talking with our team and for filling with patients for most offices, it's probably between what, seven to 10 days, seven to 14 days, if not longer, there's a lot yeah. of times it can be a lot longer. I mean, majority of our turnaround time is two days. <laughs> They're focused on being able to get that access to medication wow. really quickly, you know? You're, you're getting medication filled in two days? Well, not filled, but the prior authorization. <laughs> Because I will move my desk to inside of a pharmacy if that's what it takes. But no. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the part that takes the longest is waiting on the actual pharmacy to yeah. get the medication and stuff. Exactly. But the process, though, the prior authorization part that, you know, that's pretty quick. So, you yeah. know, if you're focused on that, then you can get that done really fast. But how do you keep your team engaged? How do you connect with them? Because I feel like sometimes working remote, you can feel a little bit isolated or you don't have, you know, reps coming in to, to give you some education or the FRMs to really educate you and keep you up to date on things, you know, so how do you keep that up? Yeah. So we do have a weekly call with our biologic coordinators and in first probably 10 minutes of that call is honestly, just tell me about your week. Mm-hmm. You know, let's talk about the weekend. Anybody, what, what's going on with life? How's the coffee this morning? You know, we want to be normal also. But we also do need to talk business. So never, though, do we never just go through and just say, okay, it's time to start this meeting. Let's just get started. We also just want to know what's happening in the world. 
So take two seconds out of your everyday life and just have a conversation with your workers. I think that's a big deal. Second part of this is that from a biologic coordinator standpoint, we also have a group text messaging going on with just mm. the coordinators themselves and all of us. And that will include family pictures, graduation pictures, you know, things that just happen in life. And that's also a lot of times too, that is a, hey, by the way, is anybody else's computer system breaking? I can't get on today. But a lot of times it's, you will not believe the car that just drove past me. You got to see this, you know, um, or super, you know, just things like we want you to have those conversations with friends. So it helps you to stay connected. But Mm -hmm. again, some of, some of our coordinators may not live close enough to each other to meet each other more than maybe once a year. So it's not something that they get to do regularly. So it's really a good thing for them to have that natural banter. When it comes to education side, I really feel like we have a great relationship with our key account managers, FRMs, that type of thing. We tend to set up regular calls with them on just like an internal meeting type thing to where coordinators can talk to them. They can talk to coordinators if there's any changes coming about, anything like that. So it's almost like an education lunch and learn type situation. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, the coordinators are given all their contact information as well. And they kind of go into it with that one-on-one relationship that someone who's already worked with someone for years has kind of had. So mm-hmm. we're like, by the way, call, text, email. If you have any questions regarding this, we want you to reach out to them. So it's almost encouraged to do so. And um, we don't want them to sit and not know what's going on because you're hoping that next week's call will roll around and you can answer a question. We want you just right. to go ahead and break. So, so yeah, I think that we really kind of maybe just approach it slightly different. We don't have thousands of FRMs. You know, we sort of do it as a account-based. Mm-hmm. So more of a one company-based. That makes sense. Makes yeah. it a little bit easier. It would be very hard for us. <laughs> yeah. I think that, again, we have like maybe our key account people and they filter information internally to their entire departments. Okay. So you are the vice president of NAMAPA, which is the National Association of Medication Access and Patient Advocacy. I love that. What <laughs> what does that role entail and how did you get involved with this? Yes. So this goes back several years. We can go back to Galveston if we want to. So very first would hear of Elizabeth Johnson's name, I feel like throughout my entire biologic career. We ran in similar circles. We had the same reps and FRM type people, speaking of FRMs. And we would constantly, I think, just hear of each other's name through the asthma and allergy space. And so I met her for the first time in Galveston. So that was um, became part of a big met you, never letting you go type, type thing. She mm-hmm. definitely became one of my go-to resources for, listen, I'm seeing this. Are you seeing this? Because we needed more of a connection in asthma and allergy. I think all of us have kind of lived by a phone a friend. And when we were starting with programs or we tried to figure out stuff, when you didn't have a, a direct go-to person, we just kind of phoned a friend. And we were like, do you have any information? So when I finally had someone in asthma and allergy, it was like, thank goodness. Okay, let's talk this out. So she definitely became like a really great contact for me. On top of that, she's become just like a tremendous friend. I call her the goat. I think she's just like, she's one of the greatest that has ever existed when it comes to access. Um, honestly, the Healthcare Advocate Summit was one of the first things that attracted me with NAMAPA. Even mm-hmm. though they're separate organizations, they're, um, NAMAPA was a sponsor of it. And so I, I kind of got involved more of looking at the resources and things like that they offered. I will be honest, one of the very first resources I pulled off there was there starting out the new year into the, bl- you know, going through the blizzard guide. I thought that was 
so tremendously helpful. And I think I have shared it with everybody I, I could ever find. Because again, we used to hear the blizzards coming, or is everybody ready for the blizzard? We would go, what are these people talking about? <laughs> no one ever told us what a blizzard was. We just thought that people were afraid Texas was going to freeze again. We didn't know what people were <laughs> We were like, why do people keep saying this word? No one is explaining this to us. But then you read this and I thought every bit of this makes sense. And putting forth or implementing these types of things made such a smoother process. So I was like, this is just amazing. Um, so what is the blizzard? Like, oh, just for any listeners that yeah. don't know oh, okay. what a blizzard is. The, the blizzard is also another term for the wonderful re-verification season. <laughs> so, and again, depending on who you are and how you want to approach it, uh, I think a lot of us have the agenda type thing to start in between October and January to where we kind of start looking at payer policies that are being updated for the new year, getting things ready in general for the next season. That would include the upcoming sending out letters to your patients, letting you know, hey, by the way, we understand you you get this, but we want to remind you, your insurance is going to change it off. You know it's going to change. Let us know. Mm-hmm. You're on a biologic therapy. It'd be great to know anything coming up. One of the best things I think an office can do is start printing out signs. Put them at your front desk. Put them on your refrigerator to your biologics. Stop. Mm. Don't give this drug if an insurance is changed. It's a visual reminder to not do it. We get caught up in our everyday workflow that just because it's January, sometimes we may have a newer employee in there, someone who doesn't do biologics all the time, who's just going to pull something and give it. That patient's then going to tell you after that injection that their insurance changed. It's just a healthy reminder to say, by the way, did your insurance change this year? Or, you know, has everything been updated and corrected? Just another healthy thing to kind of go through to make sure that everything's good to go. Yeah, the blizzard season can be stressful because the big thing about it, we do this all year long. Policies change, people's insurance change all year, but all of them have a tendency to change or update at this time of year. So this is the time that we're looking at everybody's policy and not just maybe, you know, the hit to several that change throughout the year. So it's just a busier time frame. Then again, you know, we also have the any free drug application or your copay assistance. All those need to be renewed at the end of the year for the next year. So right. it's just a lot of work process. And so we just caught the blizzard. Everything getting at once. <laughs> so you also founded the National Society of Biologic Coordinators. Yeah, that's it. So what exactly did that entail? And, you know, why did you feel the need to create that? Yeah, so the National Society was really based off of mine and Stephanie's workflow and honestly us sitting around saying, you know what, when we first started our program, we were so nervous. We were so scared. Mm -hmm. There was no one telling us how to do it. There was not a lot that we could find to help us. All we knew to do was to Google and to sit there late at night reading as much as we could and hoping that we read the right things. Mm -hmm. So after we had tried and we had, you know, failed, succeeded, anything that we did, and we learned what to do. And then honestly learned that we were pretty successful at it. We almost felt it was necessary to share what we knew because Mm -hmm. we also knew that there were other offices that didn't have anyone showing them how to do anything either. It felt like it was our duty. It would not be right not to. So I think that was part of our, our thing is that we were just like, you know, we would get asked questions a lot of times from other people who would phone us. Um, you know, maybe the FRM would share our name. By the way, have you ever heard of Lacey or have you ever heard of Stephanie? You reached out to them to see if they could help you. Our phones would ring a lot of times and then we'd say, why don't we just share with them templates that we've created over the years? Or could we put in a document how to do something? 
or a step-by-step guide on how you can create an inventory management system. Those types of things that people don't naturally just know how to do. And I mm-hmm. think that it's sometimes assumed that you do, that you're just born with this ability to know how to do this. So, right. and again, I think that, you know, what works for one doesn't work for everybody, but I think it's, we had a really great system in place. And I think that it's worked for a lot of people. So we really just wanted a place for people to be able to talk to other people, ask questions, concerns, or vent. You know, mm-hmm. um, what really kind of blew me away is that not everybody had a partner in their workplace. Some mm-hmm. people were truly just trying to go at this by themselves. That had to feel so scary. And mm-hmm. I would have lost my mind if I didn't have a buddy to do this with. So it was just two of us at that point. And we, at some points, we still thought we were going crazy. So I can't imagine trying to be in a facility and truly feeling like no one understands what you're saying. Right. Um, it can be a lonely space sometimes, the coordinator for role. Sure. Yeah. Truly, it, it is an odd position. And I still feel like sometimes we fight for people to understand the role. So mm-hmm. I can definitely see that, you know, it would be very hard. So we wanted to provide a space or, a, you know, at least a place where people had other people just like them to go to. And mm-hmm. I think that that was one of the really great things about it is that, you know, if nothing else, you had someone else that you could talk to throughout mm-hmm. the day. That's amazing. I love that, that you created that because, you know, like you said, there really was not a whole lot of resources up until now. And, and it's so important for us to be able to share that knowledge and with other coordinators, other people that are just coming into this role. And I love that now they've got resources, people to reach out to. And, you know, one of the things that I was really excited about, you know, to, to have you on podcast was just because our roles are so similar, you know, we may be in different specialties, but that passion, that drive and that process is all still the same. And I love that we can kind of put that collaboration together and bounce ideas and things like that off of each other and and get more insight and education and creating that awareness around this role and the importance of, you know, making sure we're able to get our patients on a medication quickly and effectively and, you know, streamlining that process along the way so that we can have less headaches. You know, we go through all the headaches so that others that come after us (laughs) don't have to go through as many headaches. Exactly. The trial and error. I think it's fantastic. And that's one of the, the great things with NAMAPA in general. So the National Society, we merged with NAMAPA. So we're all sort mm-hmm. of one organization now, which is okay. fantastic. I love it. Because we are all our goals were very aligned and mm-hmm. everything was still very similar. So that's one of the things that we wanted to do in general. We're all very geared towards that worker. We all know that that worker is so important on getting that patient on therapy. We want to make sure that the worker themselves has everything they need to be the absolute best at their role so that they can help more patients out there. That's how we we all succeed. So yes, we're super excited to do, we always love you to know, anything we can ever do to help you because you've helped us so much. And honestly, you're one of our our best go-to for any kind of dermatology, anything. So (laughs) you are definitely our derm connection. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, so what is the website for NAMAPA? It is NAMAPA.org, N-A-M-A-P-A. Okay. So anybody that's listening that's an allergy, asthma, or dermatology, Check out namapa.org and I really appreciate your time and thank you for joining me. I'm sure we will connect and see each other again. Yes, of course. Can't wait. Bye. Bye. Thanks for spending a few minutes with me and listening to That's Derm Good. You can expect new episodes of That's Derm Good every other week. 
The podcast is available on your favorite app, including where you're listening right now. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a new episode. Bye. Thank you.